read this story from the Christian Standard magazine. It was called Experiencing the Beauty of Peace in Bethlehem by Brian Lowry that I'm going to share with you guys. It said this, For reasons I cannot quite remember, perhaps the guidebooks or the guide himself told us it wasn't much to get worked up about, I wasn't excited to visit the birthplace of Christ. While on a study tour of Israel in the summer of 2000, I recall wishing we could spend our time in Jerusalem, but I didn't have a choice. If the group was going to Bethlehem, I was too. We walked through the dusty streets of the town and soon came to the entrance to the church of the Nativity. We stood in line for what seemed like hours, winding our way downward into a series of caves. Though we, all, we often have the nativity sets of barns and stables, Christ was actually born in a cave. Once there, I was hushed by the holiness of it all. There were candles lit here and there and everywhere. Hundreds were on their knees in prayer, scattered about on the cold, damp floor. We made our way to the traditional cave of the birth, where we read Matthew's story once again. Soon we were singing, O Holy Night, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and Silent Night. Right there in a church building that has been ravaged by war and terrorism, and today is owned by four different religious groups, we prayed for peace. We offered a continued invitation for shalom. It was one of the more sacred moments of my life. As we left, I passed by all the pilgrims yet again. Some were from Germany, Poland, or Italy, and others from England, Spain, or China. They too sang and prayed. Anger and violence wrestled about in all our worlds. But in that moment, we had all come together in Bethlehem to worship and celebrate the Prince of Peace, who, if anything, was working shalom into the folds of our lives as he will until the day he returns to work it into all things once for all. The writer said that the Prince of Peace was working shalom into the folds of our lives. Notice Leviticus 26.6, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. I will give peace or shalom in the land of God. Despite all the trouble in the world, when all those people gathered together to worship God, they put their differences aside. And through the worship of God, they were united and experienced a common peace or shalom. Continuing in our study of Ephesians this morning, open your Bibles up to Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 18. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. As we look at these verses today, we're going to focus on what they say about Jesus specifically. Extract some of the principles and identify some practical application for our lives. Last time in our series, we went through Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. And we were told by Paul to remember that we, like all believers, were not always Christians. We were at one time Gentiles in the flesh. That at one time we did not have Christ and we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the promises of God. And therefore we were without hope and godless in this fallen world. But then he went on to remind us that once we became Christians, once we were in Christ Jesus, we were no longer far away from God, but that we were brought near, the Bible says, by the blood of Christ. You may recall Ephesians 1, 7, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Remember, redemption is the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through the payment of a price. Jesus Christ paid that price on the cross through his blood or death, which in turn released us from bondage and with it many other benefits. Notice Ephesians 2.14 again. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. This verse starts to drive home the primary Christian belief that it was Jesus Christ alone who has provided redemption. It was notice he himself and no other. That has essentially solved the problem of our broken relationship with God and even with other people. It was him, the person of Jesus Christ, who paid the price. It's not the gospel message that he could do it or even that he will return, but it was the actual event in history when he hung on the cross and suffered God's wrath in our place and died, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven that restored man's relationship to God, that freed us from the bondage of sin. And it is he himself who is our peace. Notice Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and notice, Prince of Peace. Peace. It's a pervasive concept in the Bible that most commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty 
with God and one another. It most commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty with God. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and sometimes people think that if we're Christians, our life will be without violence. That Jesus being the peacemaker will provide things like world peace, physical safety, and even political peace and harmony. But notice what Jesus says in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. One source said this about peace or shalom. The Greek word irene means unity and accord. Paul uses irene to describe the objective of the New Testament church. But the deeper, more foundational meaning of peace is the spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God. It is brought about by an individual's restoration of God, with God. This restoration with God also brought about peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as outcasts, those without hope, those without God. And there existed this massive divide between the two groups, those with God and those without God. One source said that Christ has thus removed the hostility that exists between these deeply divided groups. The battlement created by hatred has been broken down forever. Jesus has given us peace, peace with God and each other. Notice Ephesians 2.14. Again, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Jesus' peace has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Essentially, there was a wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a, a fence dividing them, and that fence was the law. And the Jews' strict observance of it, which separated them from everyone else. Essentially, Jesus tore down that wall or that separation and created peace between them, making them both one in Christ, redeeming those who could not keep the law. To make it simple, the Jews did not believe anyone other than a Jewish person could go to heaven. They did not believe Gentiles could be redeemed because of their sinfulness, so much so that in their temples, there were walls that would separate the court of the Gentiles from the temple proper. There were signs that read, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Like a beware of dog sign on your backyard fence. You see this divide happening today. Many religious groups will not allow outsiders to enter their sanctuaries or their temples because they don't belong. But Jesus Christ tore down those walls. The Christian church today says, come on in and hear about the Savior. 
Come on in and find peace. Notice John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The heart of God is for people to be brought into his family. I read about a Jewish leader who prayed for everyone to know Jesus. Author Arthur F. Burns, the chairman of the United States Federal Reserve System and ambassador to West Germany, was a man of considerable gravity, medium in height, distinguished with wavy silver hair and his signature pipe. He was an economic counselor to a number of presidents from Dwight D. Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan. When he spoke, his opinion carried weight and Washington listened. Arthur Burns was also Jewish. So when he began attending an informal White House group for prayer and fellowship in the 1970s, he was accorded special respect. No one, in fact, quite knew how to involve him in the group. And week after week, when different people took turns to the end of the meeting, to end the meeting in prayer, Burns was passed by out of a mixture of respect and restraint. One week, however, the group was led by a newcomer who didn't know the usual status Burns occupied. As the meeting ended, the newcomer turned to Arthur Burns and asked him to close the time with prayer. Some of the old timers glanced at each other over the surprise and wondered what would happen. But without missing a beat, Burns reached out, held hands with others in the circle and prayed this prayer. Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus. I pray you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus. Amen. What a prayer. This Jewish leader prayed for everyone to know Jesus, even Christians. Why would he pray that? Because even Christians Those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior don't always view him as their leader or as their Lord. And therefore have demonstrated hostility toward those inside and outside the church because of things like traditions and secondary theological differences. We see that people struggle with Bible interpretations and therefore oftentimes hold on to things that cause division instead of unity. We as Christians make the same mistakes the Jewish people made, which is to isolate ourselves from those who are different. And disclaimer, I'm not, I'm not talking about those who don't believe in God or those who believe in a non-biblical God, of which there are many religious groups, but those who believe in the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible. Notice Ephesians 2.15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The word abolished means to formally put an end to something usually a system or a practice 
or an institution. We hear the word abolitionist used to describe a person who favors the end of something like slavery, sex trafficking, or abortion. As stated before, the wall that existed between the Jewish people and the Gentiles has been torn down. When Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to the hostility that existed between those who elevated the law or put the power of salvation in their own hands and those who had no salvation at all. And through dying on the cross, made the law ineffective or powerless. Notice Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Essentially, everyone, including the Jewish people, were unable to keep the strict law or comply with its legal demands. And therefore, God intervened and provided the only way for anyone to be forgiven or reconciled. And that way was Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now there's no more arguing over who is good enough to go to heaven. There's no more debate about how many laws there should be, how many of them you can keep, or what should happen if you don't. Redemption through Jesus Christ is the only way for anyone, regardless of your background, your traditions, your thoughts on what makes you good enough. Instead, Jesus created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. One source said, it was in his crucified flesh that our Lord accomplished the annulment of the law so that he might create in himself the new humanity of which he has, he as the second Adam is the head. The Christian is no hybrid, but a new creation. Remember Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think it's important to bring up that even in the discussion of Israel and our relationship to them as Christians, there are different thoughts and biblical interpretations about that. And I'm not going to go into them in depth, but here are the basics. Replacement theology. This teaches the church replaced Israel in God's plan that the church was replaced or the church replaced Israel in God's plan covenant theology covenant theology this teaches the church is an expansion of Israel that it's an expansion of Israel 
And then dispensationalism, this teaches the church is completely different and distinct from Israel. Now, you can study each of these on your own and in depth when you have time. But just keep, just to keep from getting blasted on Facebook, which happens, <laughs> I'm going to let you know that I personally lean towards dispensationalism. And to keep it simple, here's what one source said about dispensationalists that I agree with. Dispensationalists hold that the church has not replaced Israel in God's program and that the Old Testament promises to Israel have not been transferred to the church. Dispensationalism teaches that the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament for land, many descendants, blessings, will be ultimately fulfilled in the 1,000-year period spoken of in Revelation 20. Dispensationalists believe that just as God in this age is focusing his attention on the church, he will again in the future focus his attention on Israel. It's a bit complicated, and in my opinion, one of those issues that tends to divide Christians and in some cases causes Christians to stop supporting Israel, which I think is a mistake. But please feel free to study the scripture and see for yourself. St. Augustine said, The Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. The enmity or hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been restored because the enmity between man and God has been restored in and through Jesus Christ. Notice Ephesians 2.16. And that he, Jesus, might reconcile them both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. According to one dictionary, reconciliation is the process by which God and people are brought together again. The Bible teaches that there are alienated, that they are alienated from one another because of God's holiness and human sinfulness. Question, why does there need to be a process if God loves us so much? Notice Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were Still sinners, Christ died for us. The answer is that God cannot let sin go unpunished. Notice Hebrews 10.27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, adversaries. God has to judge sin because of his perfect nature. He has to judge sin because of his perfect nature. He cannot let bad reign where good is meant to be. So this reconciliation that Jesus has provided affects both man and God. And that through this process, the sins of man will be atoned for. Or to put it simply, the fine will be paid. And God's wrath is appeased, which leaves peace between man and God and allows for fellowship together. 
According to Paul, this process of reconciliation was for both Jews and Gentiles to God in one body through the cross. Question, do Jewish people need to be forgiven for their sins just like Gentiles? Romans 3.23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jewish people and non-Jewish people both need to be forgiven for their sins, according to Romans, because all people are guilty of sins, not just some. And as stated before, the forgiveness or reconciliation can only happen through Jesus Christ, which he has provided for those who will receive it. Question, what happens when a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has risen, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Any person, any person who confesses with their mouth the Lord and believes he is the Christ, the one who was raised from the dead, will be saved, both Jew and Gentile alike. Question. How many gods are there? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, and when he saves a person, they become his children. Notice 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So if a Jewish person and a Gentile both become members of the same family, we call that family Christian family, then any enmity or hostility between us is put to death. We are brothers and sisters and should put down our swords when dealing with each other. I read this article called Some Men Just Like to Fight. In the Sam Mendinas film, 1917, Lance Corporal Schofield has been tasked with crossing through enemy-infested territory to deliver crucial news of a secret ambush to the British front lines. Schofield is given a warning about the commanding officer to whom he is delivering the letter. He is told, make sure there are witnesses. Some men just like the fight. The instruction is sobering. Even though Schofield is bringing direct orders to stand down, which will save thousands of lives, he is cautioned that the orders might be ignored. Why? Because regardless of the superior command to stand down, regardless of the cost, regardless of the impossible odds and the foolhardy death that would ensue, there is a zeal for battle and some that overrides all senses. 
When you feel that you are built for war, when you long for the rush of conflict, not warring feels like cowardice, uselessness, pointlessness. Some men just like to fight, but these are not real men. Real men are willing to fight when it is necessary. Fake men are itching to fight no matter what. Fighting is sometimes necessary. Fighting is sometimes necessary. Liking to fight is not. In fact, it's forbidden. Ecclesiastes 3.8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time to war and a time of peace. Jesus preached peace. Notice Ephesians 2.17, and he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Preaching is the act of proclaiming a theological message. Generally involves the conveyance of some truth related to God or scripture with inherent significance to the audience for whom the act is being done. John MacArthur said in the New Testament preached is almost always used of proclaiming the good news that sinners can be reconciled to God by the salvation, which is through Jesus Christ. Jesus proclaimed to the Gentiles and the Jews alike, those who were far off and those who were near, that peace is available for those who want it. One source said it was accomplished by the Holy Spirit and through the apostles as the missionary program of the infant church was inaugurated in obedience to the Great Commission. Again, Jesus is the peacemaker between man and God, not necessarily peace in our lives. Question, how does a person know that they have been reconciled to God or that they have peace with God? The answer is that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ and you should have the character traits of a new creation. Notice Colossians 3.12-17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you rich, richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. William M. Greathouse writes, The new man in Christ is therefore actually living a holy life in Christ and in the power of the Spirit 
the old man he once was has ceased to be. An incident in Augustine's early Christian life illustrates this. Before his conversion, he had a mistress named Claudia. Shortly after, he found Christ, Claudia, saw him on the street in the city. Augustine, Augustine, she cried after her old lover. Augustine paid no heed. Augustine, Augustine, she cried again. It's Claudia. But it's no longer Augustine, he replied as he continued on his way. Jesus makes us right with God, and therefore we have peace with God. And our hostility should be directed at sin, because God hates sin. Notice Isaiah 59 two, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear Sin is what separated us from God, and that is why he hates it. And after being reconciled to him, after being forgiven, we are new, and we now have access again to the Father. Notice Ephesians 2.18. For through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Again, it's through Jesus Christ alone that Christians have access to God, the Father. We both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. What does one spirit mean? It could mean the Holy Spirit. It could mean the Holy Spirit. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Or it could mean in one spirit, something like the unity in the body of Christ. And there have been many cases for both. However, it makes sense to me to say access by the Holy Spirit, which further supports the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So according to this passage, Those who have accepted Jesus Christ have been reconciled to God, their transgressions have been atoned for, and there is no longer any hostility between God and those who have received that forgiveness. And in addition to having peace with God, which is, for simplicity's sake, God's mercy, not having to endure God's wrath, but rather being the recipient of his grace, or as Pastor Larry said, would say, getting your ticket to heaven, we also have access through Jesus by the Holy Spirit to God the Father. God has made those in Christ acceptable. Remember, God the Father said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And notice what Charles Spurgeon points out. We now go a step further He says, and see how the love of God to his beloved son overflows and runs like a river of life to all of those who are in Christ Jesus. To him, he said, this is my beloved son. And he turns to all who are in union with him and says, these also are my beloved for his sake. Christians, those who have Jesus are all accepted 
by God through Jesus, and we have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit, which begs the question, do you have Jesus? If you've not been paying attention, now is the time. Let's look at five principles regarding Jesus. Principle one, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, by Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his, Jesus, of his cross. Jesus Christ is our peace. Freedom from God's judgment is the single most important thing that can happen in your lifetime because it is literally the difference between heaven and hell. Principle two, Jesus is our unity. He is our unity. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Jesus Christ is what unites us as one. Together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can overcome anything, regardless of where it comes from. In principle three, Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our hope. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope. He is the only one who could offer us forgiveness. And he is the only one who can transform us into his perfect likeness. Principle four, Jesus Christ is our preacher. Matthew 23, three. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. Jesus is our preacher. Notice Jesus told us to do a great many things that he himself did. Rejoice, be righteous, don't lust. He observed all these things. The only thing that he tells us to do that he did not personally do is to repent. And that's because Jesus is perfect, good, and God. Principle five, Jesus is our only access to God the Father. He is the only access to God the Father. Luke eleven nine through 10. So I, Jesus, say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Jesus is our access to God the Father. He says that we should ask and seek and knock. So if Jesus is our peace with God, 
our unity as believers, our hope of Christ's likeness, our preacher, and our access to God. What should we do now? How can we apply any of this to our lives? First and foremost, if you are not a Christian and you do not know the love of Jesus Christ and you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then I would love to talk with you after the service as soon as possible. I would love to share the gospel with you one-on-one. Second, if you are a Christian, as I presume most everybody in the room is, then I want to encourage each of you to be peacemakers, to be peacemakers in your life like Jesus was. And I don't necessarily mean with each other, although that would be awesome too. But we need to share the gospel with as many people as possible in order to promote peace between man and God. Just as was done for us at one time, just as Jesus Christ said to do, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's really it. Accept Jesus Christ and then share Jesus Christ. I read how an extra generous tip led to a server's salvation. Robert Morris writes in The Blessed Life, I distinctly remember the first time we ever went out to eat after I had accepted Christ. I found myself wanting somehow to share Jesus with the waitress who was serving us. Then an idea came to me. If I did order a meal, I could take that money and leave it as an extra generous tip along with an even... Wow. I can say this. Evangelistic track. Maybe the tip would encourage her to read the track and come to know the Lord. So that's what we did. Before we left, we said a few words to her about how much God cared about her. About a month later, we were back in that restaurant for our monthly splurge. Through the month, I'd prayed that God would bless us with extra money to be able to leave an even bigger tip along with another track. Just as I had asked, our faithful God had allowed us to accumulate an extra $50 that we could leave along with the booklet about salvation. That night, we requested the same waitress and left her a $50 tip on a $10 meal. We returned to the restaurant one month later, very eager to see if the waitress was still working there. She was indeed. When she saw us, she said, I read that little booklet you left last time you were here. We tried not to show how excited we were for her. She continued, and I prayed that prayer to receive Christ at the end of it. Of course, we were thrilled to hear that, but she wasn't finished. Then I called my husband on the phone and read the whole booklet to him. And he prayed that prayer too. At this point, I said, that's wonderful, but what do you mean you called your husband? Does he travel for a living? Looking embarrassed, she said, no, my husband's in prison. He will get out in two or three years. We both want to thank you for leaving me that booklet and being so generous. Money has been pretty scarce since he went to prison. 
Over the next few years, my wife and I discipled this sweet waitress and saw great spiritual growth. We also began to mentor her husband in prison. When he was released, he joined the church with his wife and they were baptized together. I had the privilege of knowing that the lives and eternal destinies of this couple had been changed because I gave. And I gave because Christ changed my life. And each one of us here today, our lives have been changed by Christ. And we have the opportunity, the ability to change other lives because of that. And I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, you are such an amazing God. Thank you, thank you for all your many blessings. And most importantly, thank you for Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that through his sacrifice, we were able to be reconciled to you. It's so obvious after becoming a Christian how important that is, but it was so hard to see before becoming a Christian. And I pray, Lord, today that hearts would be open, minds would be open, and that your gospel would leave this place in a massive way and impact our community. I pray that all of those who are skeptical would find peace in your son, Jesus. And last but not least, I thank you for your word, for your holy word, and for your apostle Paul who brought it to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.